Welcome to High Heels in Politics with Mary Ann Christie. This is the podcast where current and future leaders discuss the issues facing us in Southwest Ohio and beyond. Here is Mary Ann Christie. Hello, this is Mary Ann Christie, your host for High Heels in Politics. We started podcasting only a couple of months ago by interviewing local elected officials, and what a success it has become. High Heels in Politics, it lets you hear the changes or proposed changes without having to attend meetings or getting scraps of info when you run into your local elected officials in the grocery store. High Heels in Politics provides you the opportunity to become knowledgeable and understand the issues. Local political decisions are the ones that are changing your community. And listen, they have the greatest impact on your lives. What do you mean by that? You know what? In case of a fire, do you call the President of the United States? How about that garbage or leaf pickup? How about snow removal? Or even zoning issues that affect your property, such as your neighbor deciding to put up an ugly shed next to your property line. The benefits of high heel in politics gives you the chance to get more in-depth stories compared to the mainstream media. Oh yeah, websites can reinforce messages, but it's high heels in politics let you hear directly from your elected officials. It helps you to develop a better understanding of your government and public officials' views. Our guest is one of the backbones and powerhouse elected officials in Hamilton County serving in Columbus. He has a great passion for his work, filled with untiring energy and a dynamite personality. Our guest today is State Representative Bill Seitz. Bill is a lifelong resident of Western Hamilton County, where he represents Ohio's 30th House District. Representative Seitz began his career in public service as a member of the Cincinnati Board of Education and the State Antonitis Paris Education Commission. He was twice elected Green Township trustee, where he also served as president of the Hamilton County Township Association. In the House, Bill Seitz has served as the Majority Whip and the Chairman of the Civil and Commercial Law Committee. Later, he served in the Ohio Senate for eight years. Those of you who know Bill say he's a workhorse. A 2016 article from the Columbus Monthly Magazine, they ranked all 132 legislators in Ohio and rated Bill the best speechmaker, the savviest, the funniest, the most knowledgeable, and second most effective and hardest working. His work has been recognized by the American Legislative Exchange Council, where he serves as a board member. Today, Representative Seitz is the majority floor leader of the Ohio House. He serves on five committees, including civil justice, criminal justice, 
public utilities, agriculture and rural development, and the Rules and Reference Committee. Welcome to High Heels and Politics Representative Sites. Let's begin with your current role at the State House. Everybody wonders, what does a majority floor leader do? Well, Marianne, the majority floor leader is the uh, third position in uh, governance of the Ohio House, behind the Speaker of the House and the Speaker pro tempore. And as majority floor leader, uh, I am part of Speaker Householder's leadership team uh, in uh, helping to mentor our newer members, helping to keep the majority as unified as possible, and uh, providing uh, the experience that comes with 19 years of service in the General Assembly to uh, help uh, shape the direction in which the Republican majority, uh, which is a 61 to 38 majority, will lead our state. Procedurally, the majority floor leader is expected to rise uh, during floor sessions and move to table those amendments that are introduced by way of floor amendments that are either not germane or have not been adequately vetted in committee. Uh, Typically, we rise to table amendments offered by the minority, many of which are simply intended to uh, harass and embarrass (laughs) the majority in its consideration of the bill. Perfect example of that was just a week or so ago when we voted on the heartbeat bill and one of the minority members rose to make an amendment saying that uh, this bill will not apply to African-Americans. And we could have had a field day with that amendment because it's plainly unconstitutional and actually very cruel because that amendment would have said that it's okay to abort black babies after a fetal heartbeat is detected but not to abort uh, babies of other races. Uh, We could have had a field day with that, but we did not want to needlessly inflame prejudices on a passionate issue. So uh, I was uh, asked to simply rise and move to table the amendment. We tabled it and we moved on. So procedurally, that's what I do. But most of my work as majority floor leader is to assist the speaker and our leadership team in shaping the direction in which the uh, Republican House majority moves. That's very interesting for all of us, including me. I want to skip over, Bill, and ask you, as the majority floor leader, you had the task of working with the state legislators to vet the governor's transportation budget, which included an increase of the gas tax in Ohio. Most of us agree that Ohio highways are in dire need of repair. Even two weeks ago, I hit one of those potholes on 71. It cost me $250 to replace a tire in a lot of time. So let me ask you, what were some of the conversations in Columbus that led to the decision to increase or not to increase that gasoline tax? Well, Marianne, uh, you're not alone in having an unfortunate pothole experience on 71 because in late February, as I was coming uh, home from Columbus, I too hit a pothole. And uh, the next morning when I got home, my uh, left front tire was at zero PSI. And I discovered that I not, not only had a blown tire, but a bent rim. And but for the fact that I have tire protection on my car lease, that would have cost me over $1,000. 
So motorists all around Ohio, particularly given this rough winter, were really feeling the effects of inadequate support to repair our roads and build new ones. The fact of the matter is the federal government has not raised the federal gas tax since 1992. The state legislature had not voted on a gas tax increase since 2003. Over that period of time of of inaction, we saw cars getting more fuel efficient. Therefore, gas tax revenues were producing less money than previously. And also, we saw uh, the advent of more electric cars, hybrid cars, and vehicles powered by compressed natural gas and liquid natural gas, none of which paid so much as a farthing towards gas tax because they weren't using gas. And so when Governor DeWine uh, proposed the gas tax increase, uh, he found a ready, willing, and able supporter in me. Now, anytime you raise taxes, it's never a pleasant discussion. However, the gas tax per the Ohio Constitution is constitutionally earmarked solely for roads and bridges. It cannot be spent on bike paths or walkways or pedestrian bridges or uh, mass transit. It must be spent on roads and bridges. So we know that this is an earmarked tax that goes solely for the purpose intended. That's good. We also know a 10.5 cent increase in the gas tax, which is what we settled on, is really quite modest. Uh, We believe for an average driver, this will cost less than $60 a year. And frankly, Marianne, when you look at it, gas in in Cincinnati was under $2 a gallon in December 2018. Now gasoline in Ohio and Cincinnati is about $2.75. There was no intervening gas tax. Gas prices rose by 75 cents in three months. I didn't see anybody stop driving. So the bottom line is this is a very modest increase but it does provide the money that we need to keep our roads and bridges in good repair. We, we made a very, I I had a lot to do with that budget, Marianne. One of the things that we did was we changed the split, which used to be 60% of the money going to ODOT and 40% to local government. We changed it to 55% to ODOT and 45% to local government. And we also made sure that the money for townships, flowed to those townships based on the number of lane miles and vehicle registrations in each township. The old formula called for all of the townships' money to be divided equally among all 1,308 Ohio townships so that a township with one lane mile and five people would get the same amount of money as Green Township or Anderson Township with 40, 50, or 60,000 people, hundreds of lane miles of roads. That made no sense. So I fought very hard and successfully to get that change in the formula as part of what we did. The other thing we did that was very important was we recognized that it's high time for electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, compressed natural gas and liquid natural gas vehicles to start paying a fair share towards maintenance of the roads. Admittedly, they don't use gasoline, but we came up with an equivalency formula so that those who drive electric vehicles will now pay $200 a year when they register their plates. Hybrid vehicle owners will pay $100 a year when they register their plates. Similar formula for CNG and LNG, so that all vehicles that use Ohio's highways will now be paying for the maintenance and repair and improvement of those highways. I was a very vocal supporter of an increase in the gas tax. We also increased the diesel fuel tax by 19 cents a gallon. And you might say, well, why did you do that? 
Well, these big semi-trucks are really responsible for more damage to our roads than are uh, a tiny little Isetta or Subaru. And so we thought it was appropriate to call on the diesel uh, vehicles to pay more. So we did that. And between the two, the 10.5 cent on gas, the 19 cent on diesel, we came up with uh, roughly $1.2 billion a year uh, to improve our highways. And that's great. I mean, I, I'm an infrastructure Republican. Our problem, Marianne, was that a number of my colleagues ran on a platform that they would never increase a tax unless there was a corresponding tax cut. They kind of put themselves in a box when they were that adamant about it. And so therefore, they were compelled to vote no because of a pledge that they made that probably they should not have made because you never know what you might be compelled to do in order to keep basic infrastructure intact in this state. But nonetheless, under the leadership of Larry Householder and the House and Senate GOP majorities, we were able to get this done. It's great. And a a side benefit, something else I worked on in this was finally, uh, we got meaningful reforms in the way that some of these cities are running red light and speed camera programs. They have in Dayton and in Toledo and other places, uh, handheld speed cameras where uh, they issue uh, civil tickets to people that are speeding. Uh, We've been in a running fight with these cities for years. And so what we did in the budget is we said, listen, you can have as many of these cameras as you want because the Supreme Court has said that's a matter of home rule. But for every dollar you raise off of these cameras, we are going to cut your local government funds dollar for dollar so that if you choose to raise revenue that way, you don't need our money. And also, we said that if you want to prosecute anybody for not paying these civil photo enforcement tickets, you will have to go to municipal court. Just like any other municipal ordinance, you'll have to go to court and prove it. Uh, Because what these cities have done instead of going to court is they hire a city employee to give you an administrative hearing before a kangaroo court to determine your guilt or innocence. And we don't think that is a good idea. We don't think that comports with due process. So we are requiring that all of these tickets be prosecuted in municipal court and make the city pay the filing fee and hire the lawyer. So we are trying to take the profit out of policing for profit. And that was another great amendment that we got into the transportation budget bill, which is another reason why I proudly supported it. Hey, Bill, that gasoline tax helped rebuild the Brent Spence Bridge or the Western Hills Viaduct? It will certainly help uh, with the Western Hills Viaduct. I neglected to mention one other thing we did in the transportation budget is give cities and townships the right, if they choose, to raise license plate registration fees by $5 per vehicle per year. And uh, we did that in the case of counties two years ago. That was an amendment that I got into the transportation budget two years ago. And armed with that additional $5 authority, Hamilton County was able to raise $33.5 million towards repairing the Western Hills Viaduct. So if the city of Cincinnati, uh, whose road this is, wishes to take advantage of that newfound $5 authority, that will be a significant source of money for uh, the Western Hills Viaduct. And also the increased amount of money that we gave to all local governments in this budget will provide a source of money for repairing the Western Hills Viaduct. The Brent Spence Bridge is a much bigger conversation. It's a much more expensive project. It's actually Kentucky's bridge, and uh, we need cooperation with Kentucky in order to figure out the best way forward on the Brent Spence. The good news is Governor Bevan and Governor DeWine seem to be working at uh, common purposes 
to move that badly needed project forward. It's a that's a multi-billion dollar project that will probably involve having to put electronic tolls on at least the new bridge. That's a bigger conversation. But what we did in the transportation budget will provide a lot of relief for uh, our local roads and bridges, including projects like the Western Hills Viaduct. I'm going to skip now over to talking about the prison system in Ohio. Past 30 years, it's had like a 500% increase in the prison population. And the recent uh, former director of correctional system, Gary Moore, he really wanted to try to reduce the inmate population. Can you tell us what caused the increase and also what can lawmakers do in Columbus to reduce this population? Well, Marianne, that's a that's a uh, that would be a topic for a whole nother show. But let me say at the outset, I thought very highly of Gary Moore. He was a great director of the Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections, known as DRC. The cause of the increase over the last 30 years is multifaceted. One big part of the cause of the increase is the increase in the scourge of drugs, particularly heroin, particularly fentanyl, particularly those serious drugs like methamphetamine. We are not putting people in state prison for possession of marijuana. We're not doing that. That's not, a, that's not the issue. It's these hardcore drugs. So that's cause number one. Cause number two is we have had, unfortunately, a parade of, of bills that increase penalties on this kind of crime or that kind of crime. Some of those bills are meritorious. Uh, For example, we sharply increased the penalties on human trafficking. That was probably a good idea. But some of them, frankly, have uh, led to an increase in the prison population. Right now, we have a little bit under 50,000 people in the state prison system. It was built to accommodate 38,000 people. So like my mother used to say, You can't put 10 pounds in a five-pound bag, and that is, in essence, what we're doing by having a prison system that is some 12,000 people over capacity. Over the last eight years, I've been a leader in criminal justice reform, and we've passed a lot of great bills that have reduced the rate of increase and actually reduced the population. It used to be up around 52,000, 53,000. As I say, we've made some progress. Ohio also is fortunate to have a relatively low rate of recidivism. That means the rate at which offenders reoffend. And in Ohio, our recidivism rate is only about 28 to 30 percent, meaning that only about 28 to 30 percent of the prisoners that are released will reoffend within three years. The national average is closer to 50 percent. So that's good news because we have made significant investments in community corrections, in halfway houses, think locally about our friends at Talbert House and the good work that they're doing. So we we have made strides, but more needs to be done. And it's tough because no one wants to be seen as being soft on crime. At the same time, we need to look at the actual evidence about what works to reduce recidivism. The only way that I can guarantee you that no one will reoffend is if we had capital punishment or life without parole sentences for everybody that's in prison, and obviously that makes no sense. So most of these folks will get out. The question then is, what kind of training are we giving them in prison? What kind of educational opportunities are we giving them in prison? One of the things we did eight years ago 
was provide an opportunity for prisoners to reduce their sentence by 8% if they took educational courses and job training courses while they were in prison. That was something that I championed. That's a great idea because otherwise these folks are going to get out of prison. They don't have a job. They don't have an education. They'll go right back out on the street to commit new crimes. So we did that. I think we could expand that program, quite frankly. I think we need more supports for people that are getting out of prison to help them find jobs. And that's why a few years ago, uh, working in a bipartisan way with a, an African-American Democrat senator from Cleveland, we passed something called the CQE law, which allows a released offender to apply back to the sentencing court for a certificate of qualifications for employment showing that that person has been rehabilitated. If they get the CQE, they can then go to any employer, public or private, and if that employer hires that ex-con, that employer will be immune from getting sued for negligent hiring. And that was one of the big reasons why businesses told us that they do not hire ex-offenders. They're afraid of getting sued if the ex-offender re-offends in the workplace. And so we passed the CQE law seven years ago, and it's been successfully deployed in some of our urban counties. The rural counties are a little bit slow on the uptake to take advantage of it, and more needs to be done to reform that process. But these are the kinds of things we need to be looking at to help reduce our prison overcrowding and making sure that the released offenders do not reoffend. So it's a huge subject. Gary Moore was frustrated because we didn't get enough done to suit him. I share his frustration. Uh, and that, frankly, is one of the reasons why we had that state issue on the ballot last year, where people frustrated at the slow pace of criminal justice reform came up with a rather overreaching constitutional amendment, which the voters happily defeated. But I think that whole movement was born out of frustration that we have not done all we could do towards reducing the prison overcrowding situation and helping ex-offenders become reintegrated into society. You're on the Public Utilities Committee. Yes, I've chaired public utilities both in the House and in the Senate. Yes, I, okay. I'm on public utilities, yes. Recently, the Speaker of the House discussed House Bill 86, known as the Ohio Clean Air Program, which would add $2.50 fee to the Ohioans electric bill. Do you want to talk about the pros and cons of that legislation? Sure. Uh, well, Marianne, it's House Bill 6, not 86. Okay. House Bill 6, yep. that bill was assigned to the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, a committee on which I do not sit. Uh, however, I can give you the background about House Bill 6. It's a bold move by our speaker. The bill, sponsor, uh, the bill sponsors are selected by the speaker to carry this legislation. And the background is this. Ever since the Strickland administration, Ohio has had what's called the Renewable Portfolio Standard Mandate and the Energy Efficiency Mandate. During Strickland's term, we in the legislature mandated that power generators like Duke Energy and First Energy must procure a certain percentage of their electricity from renewable power sources like wind, solar, and hydro. We also mandated that those same utilities must reduce electric demand by offering energy efficiency programs for businesses and residents to become more energy efficient 
thereby using less electricity. Those mandates do not come for free. They come with a cost. And the current average cost on the average residential user's bill is in excess of $2.50 a month. I just spoke with Duke Energy yesterday. They said currently the cost of the Strickland mandates exceeds $4 on average for residential users. So what the speaker wants to do is eliminate those Strickland era mandates, the RPS mandate, the EE mandate, and replace it with this clean air program. In recognition of the fact that we have two nuclear power plants in Northern Ohio, the Davis-Bessey plant and the Perry plant, that are zero carbon emission plants, meaning they emit no harmful pollutants whatsoever. And so what the speaker would like to do since those plants have announced that they will close is to provide a, a subsidy to producers of clean energy, be they nuclear, clean gas, clean coal, wind, solar. Uh, he's gonna create a pool of money, believed to be about $300 million, and fund it through this charge on ratepayer bills which, as I say, is supposed to be less charge than what folks are now paying for the Strickland-era mandates in order to provide a level of subsidy for generators of clean electricity. This will hopefully keep those two nuclear power plants open until the end of their useful life, which is many years away, at least 20 years away. Uh, and the reason is that once a nuclear power plant closes, it cannot, for regulatory reasons, reopen. So if these plants close, sayonara, they're not going to reopen. We think it's important to keep a diverse fuel source for electricity generation. Uh, while we welcome all of the beautiful, wonderful natural gas that we found in Ohio over the last 10 years, and while we acknowledge that natural gas is now the cheapest fuel with which to make electricity, that's all true. However, we don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket. And my fear and the speaker's fear is that if the nuclear plants close, if all the rest of the coal plants close, and all we have left is natural gas, perhaps supplemented by a minuscule amount of wind and solar, we will find ourselves ruining that day. Because once that competition is gone, the gas people will be able to raise price profitably and uh, then we would end up paying more. So we think it's important to keep some nuclear around, to keep some coal around, uh, in order to keep everybody honest uh, in terms of the manufacture of electricity, which we all need, which we all use. I myself have solar power on my roof. I put solar panels on my a roof of my house a couple of years ago. It is providing 80% of my electricity usage. So I am not against green power. But uh, I am for uh, trying to keep baseload power. I want to keep that around. Wind and sun are great, but when the wind doesn't blow, wind doesn't work. When the sun doesn't shine, solar doesn't work. So until we are able to figure out how to capture that wind and solar energy and retain it so that it can be used during periods when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, we are going to be reliant on baseload power plants meaning nuclear, coal, and gas. And so we're just trying to preserve a good electricity landscape and replace one set of antiquated mandates with a new clean air program that will uh, reward producers of low carbon emission electricity.
Okay. Hey, Bill, since you brought up natural gas, you really made the news across the whole state of Ohio when you compared Ohio's to the old Jed Clampett and the oil. I guess Ohio is song can be gas that is white gold Ohio tea. Well, you're right, Marianne, and and I've been on this bandwagon for 10 years. As I say, I've taken a keen interest in energy issues. 10 years ago, we discovered, like Jed Clampett, sitting under the hills of eastern Ohio, some of the most copious supplies of natural gas in the world. In fact, if West Virginia, western Pennsylvania, and eastern Ohio was a country, it would be the third largest producer of natural gas in the world to the point where there is so such plentiful supply of natural gas over there that natural gas prices in Ohio are actually even cheaper than they are on the Texas Gulf Coast. And traditionally, the Texas Gulf Coast, the Henry Hub price was the base price for natural gas. We have so much natural gas in Ohio, it actually is cheaper than the Texas Gulf Coast price. That's great. It's a wonderful problem to have. That's why we believe we will eventually land what's called a cracker plant, a huge petrochemical plant over there in eastern Ohio, to refine the uh, liquid natural gas uh, byproducts of dry natural gas. So it's a wonderful problem to have. And when I rose on the floor of the Senate and recited the old Beverly Hillbilly song, I was being very sincere. We are indeed like Jed Clampett. We didn't know we had this resource. All of a sudden, we discovered this resource. We need to make it feasible for that resource to be fully developed, including safe drilling in state parks, including safe drilling pretty where anywhere there's a good natural gas supply. And we need to build the pipelines to make sure that the natural gas can be transported to places where it's needed. So it is a wonderful problem to have. We are very delighted that we have this resource. It has really helped to improve Ohio's economy. And so uh, I'm all for natural gas. But that doesn't mean that I want to put the nuclear folks out of business or dry up the coal folks. The trick here, the sweet spot here, is to provide enough help to keep nuclear in the game to some extent, while at the same time not hurting our natural gas producers and their ability to fully develop the natural gas resource that we have. So it's tricky and it's complicated. I know there are many of my Republican colleagues that say, why don't we just let free markets work? And if the nuclear people cannot compete, let them go out of business and let the coal people go out of business. I know there are so-called free market Republicans that say that, uh, but Uh, I would say that it's a little bit more complicated than that because we have to look down the road to what happens when those other fuel resources are out of business, and then what's going to happen. You know it and I know it. The remaining uh, monopolist will raise price profitably. We will not be happy when that day comes because gas prices are significantly more volatile than, for example, nuclear prices. Once you've built the plant, you can run that plant for 50 or 60 years and have to refuel it only once in a blue moon. So, you know, nuclear provides a valuable resource in terms of electricity generation. Thank you, Bill. How can listeners contact you? The best way to contact me, I have a number in Columbus, 614-466-8258. And my email address up there is rep 30 
30, rep 30 at ohiohouse.gov. Rep 30 at ohiohouse.gov. I represent District 30, which is Delhi Township, Green Township, Cheviot, and West Price Hill. If folks want to get in touch with me, that's uh, two good ways to get in touch. And we do try to respond to uh, most everybody that writes with a question or, or a comment. Well, I do want to thank you, Bill. I just want to say you really are a great communicator and you do inspire so many others who are running for public office. Thank you so very much. Well, that's very kind. Happy happy uh, holidays to everybody, and I appreciate being on your show, Marianne. As I said in my opening about State Representative Bill Seitz, he is one of the top leaders in Columbus. He is a great communicator and inspires others. He takes pride in the accomplishments of those he has helped along the way. Seitz has always stuck to his beliefs and values at any cost. He is known for his honesty, commitment, and passion. He'll be running for state rep in 2020. Now in closing, my thanks for the producers Pam Gross and Ryan Kulik. We at High Heels and Politics would like to hear from you. Did you find the interview interesting? informative, thought-provoking? Are there other community leaders that you would like to hear? If so, contact me, Marianne Christie, at High Heels and Politics. My email is highheelspolitics at gmail.com. That's H-I-G-H-H-E-E-L-S-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-A s at gmail.com. Thank you for your time and interest. High Heels and Politics with Marianne Christie is produced and engineered by Ion Community. Music by Sharad Sate. Subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts.